Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Aid Evolved, and I'm your host, Rowena Luke. This season, we're speaking with donors and investors who are driving new ways to improve lives in Africa. Today, I am so excited to welcome John Fairhurst to the show. John is the head of private sector engagement at the Global Fund. For those of you in the public health space, I think the Global Fund needs no introduction. But for those of you dialing in from elsewhere, let me just add that the Global Fund, in its 20 years of existence, has channeled something like $55 billion. I think I got that right. $55 billion to the fight against HIV, TB, and malaria around the world. So it is an institution. And John is responsible for building the connections between that institution and the private sector. In the conversation today, we're going to talk about John's work with big tech, household names like Google and Microsoft, and also how the Global Fund works with and elevates emerging technologies and new startups. We'll also talk about the relationships that just don't work out, the partnerships that don't make sense. Bonus, you get to hear about how John got schooled by a woman in rural Afghanistan and what that taught him about working in global development. Be sure to stick around for the end when John shares his one piece of advice to donors supporting innovations from the private sector. If you like what you hear on the show today, be sure to connect with us on LinkedIn or Twitter. And don't forget to subscribe to the show so that you don't miss an episode. One last thing, we'll be taking time in a future episode to air your questions and comments. So send a recording or an email to podcast at eightevolve.com and hear yourself on this show. Now, let's get started by learning a little bit more about John Fairhurst. John started his career in pharma and finance. He joined Oxfam, where he oversaw their work in places like the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Eritrea, and Afghanistan. That's kind of intense. He helped establish the portfolio of one of the largest private foundations in international development, the Children's Investment Fund, and was COO at the Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition. Before joining the Global Fund, he served as an executive director at UBS Optimus Foundation. I asked John to share with us something that people who work with him might not know, something about the people who have influenced his work. One of the most sort of important experiences which links to something that people might not know is that my, you know, my favorite country in the world is Afghanistan. I did not know that. It's a country I worked for a couple of years around 2001, 2002. And it's just an incredible country that has been, you know, so devastated by conflict, by poverty, by natural disaster, by earthquakes and, and droughts. But yet the people there are just the most amazingly resilient and welcoming and warm uh, communities that really do bring you into their lives as a, a sort of visitor. And it, it always felt so, I guess, juxtaposed with the image that a country like Afghanistan has in what we often see and, and hear about the country. And so it's it really settled, I guess, in my in my heart around the things that you know, the, the things that motivate me to do the kind of work that I do, because those countries, the stories we see and the, the representation we get misses the fact that people who live in those countries are just the most incredible people. 
to manage their lives and deliver their passion. Was there a particular moment or a person or interaction while you were working there that sticks in your mind when you remember those years? Yeah, it's an interesting question. You know, there is one. I, I travelled one day. I was there and the, the first time that the Taliban were in, uh, in charge of the country. And obviously the current context is particularly devastating to see. Uh, we travelled. We drove for, for nearly three days to find a place. And then we actually went on horseback for another, another two days to get to a, a series of communities. So you're a horseback rider. <laughs> no, I wasn't. Uh, um, but after two days, I was a lot better. But and we, we met this this woman there who said to me that I must think she's stupid, huh. having travelled, you know, as a as a Westerner out into the the communities, and 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 so we had this whole conversation around uh, that was so far from the truth because the ability to live and to thrive, and 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 the main thing was to really have this passion around children's education uh, and particularly girls education because as we all know that's a huge challenge in Afghanistan then and, and again now you know a horrible context to be in and so her drive and support was so far from this idea I felt actually incompetent in her presence <laughs> uh, and incapable of being you know really uh, to show that kind of passion and commitment. I love the audacity of that woman. You must think I'm stupid, John. <laughs> I love that she called you out. But again, it goes to this sort of, you know, the this sense of the perspectives that we all have of, of each other. And I think really challenged my perspective around how you can bring support to people, but they have to be at the center of defining how they want to live their lives and how they use that support. Absolutely. Uh, you know, whether it's private sector or support or anything else, it's it's not the image I think that many people have of the people who are poor and marginalized. Absolutely. Thank you for that story, John. Next, we wanted to dive more into the work that you do, establishing partnerships between basically everybody. You've, uh, you manage a million different partnerships, and we're only going to touch on a specific part of it, and I'm just going to acknowledge that. But I was hoping we could get started talking about big tech, which is a topic that's on people's minds a lot. Uh, I know the Global Fund has worked with some of the biggest, still works with some of the biggest names in tech, Microsoft, Google, etc. Can you provide some color to the picture of how those partnerships come together? Like, how do you create and manage those things? What are some of the, the benefits and the risks that you're constantly navigating in those partnerships? In, in a way, it links a little bit to that story um, uh, in the sense that our, our view is that we, we need to connect the sort of resources between those different kinds of contexts. And, and of course, big tech has, you know, these incredible resources. They, they, they have uh, incredible intellectual capacity. They have an amazing toolkit um, to do all sorts of things that make business successful, make um, health in high-income countries more, more successful, uh, whether you're talking about Google or Microsoft or Salesforce or whoever. You need to get Microsoft to give you OpenAI. Well, and it's it's a, it's a great example of you know the, the, what often happens is those technologies get uh, progressed and evolved in very commercial settings for all sorts of reasons, which are, are positive, and, but but they're not deployed in the same way in in places that don't have a an effective business model for people like the woman I met in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And so our role is to try and bring that connection because it's, it's hugely powerful to have Google's information processing capabilities and AI as well, as you say, 
You know, what we really want to do is make sure that this is needs-based. So it's not about finding technology for the sake of it, but saying what are the, what are the critical problems that, that these technologies or capacities can solve. And so what we're, we're doing is, in essence, bringing the connection between these problem statements. For example, some, one of the critical problem statements in the world, which is very relevant, is the ability to find people who have TB. Because not everybody knows it's a respiratory disease like COVID, not always diagnosed effectively. There's a 4 million people in the world who never get diagnosed, never get found. And if you can use some of these information analytics to, to target where you're testing, where you're searching for people, then you can become much more efficient and effective at, at, at finding the hotspots, at supporting patients, and at, stop, at cutting the disease off, stopping those people giving it uh, to other people. Yeah. And so those examples, AI, for example, is being used in x-ray screening. So that rather than having to have a highly qualified doctor to screen an x-ray and say that person has TB, you can actually now use AI to look at the, the images and identify the fact that these people you know, are infected and then make sure they, they transition to treatment. And so bringing those technologies to these sort of needs-based uh, uh, issues is, is really powerful. Um, on the risk side, I, I mean, I, I, we, we have a, a, a really detailed sort of due diligence uh, process which allows us to look at companies and understand uh, the kind of risks that they have. And you know, the truth is all organisations have risks associated with themselves. Um, uh, and that's really important to us that we, we, we make sure we build that risk analysis to how we define the project. So. We make sure there's no conflict of interests. You know, we're not working on things that are purely business uh, related. Um, we make sure that we're clear in the countries where there may be challenges um, for, for technology companies to work on on either side. So that's a really important part of what we do. Um, but the critical piece is we start from, you know, how can we take a, a challenge that we see in our world, finding TB cases or, or screening x-rays, and then bring the you know these very advanced technologies to to be deployed um, to solve it because that that gets uh, a really positive outcome for everybody you know for the people with TB but also for the technology companies to know that they've contributed. Absolutely, there's a great document I'll link in the show notes uh, from the Global Fund just describing your your policy approach and explicitly calling out the risks. You know these are the risks and this is how we're going to tackle them. And I really like that you're you're putting it front and center. Uh, you're making it clear you've thought about them and you've proceeded with the relationships that are going to address those risks. Next question for you, John, is about the little guys, the startups. I'm sure you must be inundated all the time by smart, young entrepreneurs who want to get the heft of the global fund behind them. What guidance do you give all those entrepreneurs? Are there any success stories you can point to about how global fund has directly or indirectly supported a startup to scale? Yeah, I, 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 it's hugely important. I, I, I think if you look at our context, you know, whether it's global health or or nutrition or education, it, what what's really clear, I think, is that we need we need to drive the effectiveness of how we spend money. You know, the money is never, even more in our current world, uh, a sort of bottomless pit, uh, uh, unfortunately, or a magic money tree. Yeah. Um, so this this whole innovation space in terms of driving, you know, more effectiveness of the solutions we have is 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 more important than ever. I think. 
Um, and I think a lot of that innovation, to your point, comes from entrepreneurs. It comes from people starting uh, new ideas. Um, so it's really, really important for us to look at. The, the critical thing, and we've seen this in a number of the partnerships that we work on, is it is like in business, those entrepreneurs having a sort of pathway to scale and really understanding how their technology would become a scaled solution. Because I, I think it's, it's often hard to scale an idea if it wasn't designed with scale in mind. Uh, and that's, I think, where a lot of innovation sort of struggles. It's fantastic. It's, it's really effective, but it's too expensive or it needs a cold chain that you can't provide in the kind of context that we're working in. So just understanding, you know, the, the real context, I think, is, is so important i mean it's like any business if you know your customer if you know your market uh, and understand that as you build your innovation you're much more likely to be successful yeah what i like about the cold chain example that you threw out there is that it sort of points to the fact that you in the role that you have you're looking at the the big picture you know how do we actually tackle malaria and tb there's lots of innovations out there you know maybe you're building a better diagnostic or a better you know truck or something like that uh, but if it's not addressing the the whole picture that's actually going to move the outcomes forward then then global fund doesn't really have a role to play there right like global fund you're not you don't exist in order to place bets uh you exist to fight hiv tb and malaria yeah exactly and one of the things that we've been doing a lot of with with, with big tech and and and, and smaller uh, sort of startups is is trying to make sure that we're designing the solutions in a sort of scaling environment. So this this whole history of look, we we develop an idea and then we sort of throw it over the fence to the big guys and they scale it. Mm. Um, it's very inefficient because we throw probably ninety nine percent of the things back over the fence and say it doesn't work. <laughs> Try again. <laughs> Whereas if you actually have a sort of if you like a door in the fence where. We're actually, uh, you know, working together to think about, okay, if we scaled um, this diagnostic, if we scaled uh, this new piece of technology, artificial intelligence in TB screening, how how would we design it in the first place so that it, it can be scalable? So it, it, it's in a way, it's that, that translational conversation of going from sort of an innovation to something bigger. It, I mean, this is, this is what they term in, in any sector, the sort of valley of death. Yeah, this is where in venture capital, where organizations fall and never climb out. The valley of death. For those of you outside venture capital, let me explain. When you make a new invention, at the very beginning, you get by on your savings or a check from your mom, maybe sleeping on a friend's couch. Much later in the life of an invention, Hopefully it's generating revenue of some kind. Hopefully it's paying for itself and you're off to the races, you're scaling. But there's that long, dark slog in between those two spaces. The years that you spend working on building and iterating and testing on something and basically losing money after you've spent all your family savings and before the venture capitalists are interested in you. That place, that's the valley of death. And that's where nine out of 10 startups fail. John speaks to the role of the global fund in that middle area before venture capitalists and other institutional investors are ready to come in, helping new inventions find 
that path to scale. That conversation in the middle, which is where, uh, you know, the Global Fund, the role I play, I think is really focused. It's, it's so central to the success of taking that innovation to scale. And it's not just the Global Fund, it can be other organisations too. Right. Is there a specific example you can describe of how an organisation like yours with your financing mandate has worked effectively with a startup through that hole sure, in the well, wall? It's a great metaphor. <laughs> Yeah, well, one of our, one of our uh, I think, very successful partners is, is an organization called Zenesis. Um, um, and they created a, uh, a sort of technology which uh, allows you to, to, to effectively collate information from multiple systems. So obviously in health systems, you have multiple uh, sources of information. You have your, your monitoring information on disease. You have your supply chain information of how products move in the country you have weather information which looks at you know the risk of floods or or uh, you know heat waves um, many other pieces of information and in many organizations those sources of information don't get combined into a, a sort of logical structure which allows people to make decisions to say there's going to be a flood or you know the flood the rainy season is here so let's move our products faster um, or we're seeing a peak of malaria you know consistently in this season let's let's respond to that so then this has created this technology that sucks up all these different information sources um, which is often a lot harder than it seems yeah and puts them into sort of consistent dashboards also does a whole series of sort of machine learning analytics which allows decision makers to to make smarter decisions wow um and we if did this sort of you know almost hole in the walls thing where we came together and said okay how how can we support that technology that approach even not, not even just Genesis's technology um, being uh, seen by ministries of health as really powerful and so doing uh, supporting Genesis sort of roll out in, uh, in a number of countries hmm. to create these sort of case studies of saying well this is the power and they did a number of things in um uh, some really interesting spaces looking at, um, you know, one of the key audiences we work on at HIV is it's, uh, sex workers hmm. um, uh, because they're highly exposed, obviously. Uh, um, and so looking at the analysis of how do we best support uh, people um, in that profession, they did a whole lot of work on COVID, um, integrating COVID data into systems. Um, and so they've really uh, scaled across a number of countries really demonstrating the value of their technology sort of on the ground uh, on a on a real time basis so not in a sort of pilot stage but actually real contribution to um, big challenges and i know there's a lot of analytics and ai solutions out there uh, what is it about zenesis that made that partnership work or is it more on zenesis's side approaching you and expressing the interest to meet you where you wanted to meet them yeah, it's it, it's a it's a great question. It it it's it's a number of things. I think one is um, they, they they had a solution to to what is you know a you know a widespread challenge. I mean, in every Ministry of Health, you know, almost everywhere in the world, but certainly in in sort of poorer, low middle income countries, that there is this real challenge of the lack of you know the, the inability to build coherent, consolidated information systems. So there was a real problem statement there um and you know and implementing a 
a fully integrated health information system is hugely expensive and complicated beyond many of these organizations. Yeah. And so that was one. They had a solution that was really powerful. I think, too, is what, what they really demonstrated, and, and this is important in this sort of scaling agenda, is that they understood the context. Um, they understood how to work in the kind of countries where the Global Fund works, in, in places like South Africa and Ethiopia and uh, Rwanda. Uh, and that's really important in the sense of, it, you know, you're, you, you know that they will develop the technology in their approach in a way that, you know, leads you to success. Um, and the third thing is, we, you know, we saw this as um, uh, you know, they demonstrated a really effective technology they demonstrated that it they could do this uh, and they could do it quickly and efficiently um it's not the only technology out there that does this and our our goal is never to promote a single supplier uh, because a single supplier will never meet all of the needs in the you know in the in the in the world or the, even the continents uh, that we were even in the countries and technology changes you know <laughs> Exactly, but but to to really focus on saying you know these are the new technologies that you know can be really transformational in in how you uh, drive impact in in sort of health systems, um, and so more of an example, if you like, uh, of, of of what needs, it. and then other organisations can pick up the same kind of approaches, or they can do it slightly differently. Yeah, completely fine um, for us. Yeah, that makes sense. That's a great example. You've talked a lot about the various different partnerships and the ways in which you've made them work. Can you talk a bit about a time when you've had to say no? Uh, maybe, you know, a partnership that you were excited about, you wanted to make it work, they wanted to make it work, but like the factors that come together to make your job hard and to make it so that sometimes you have to say no? Yeah, I um, I, I mean, it's a, I think the first thing to say, this is, this is obviously a good thing. Um, uh, I mean, the, 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 maybe not for the people we say no to, but, but, you know, the context of innovation, I think, is that you have to expect that not everything will be successful, not everything will be relevant. Um, uh, and so not everything can sort of, you know, progress. Um, one example, um, which is hard to talk about the, the names for, for all sorts of reasons, but we did, we did, some work in in a, a country in Africa, which looked at um, how do you create a framework that makes sure when you're building information systems that the systems are interoperable. You know that they they can share information, they can work together. Mm-hmm. And we did a, a significant piece of work in this country with the Ministry of Health to uh, develop the sort of standards and the approaches and the frameworks of doing this better. Build the capacities of people in the the country to do it better. Really fantastic innovation, really fantastic output, very successful uh, project. Um, the, the, the challenge uh, was what we what we couldn't extract was the sort of intellectual property of what made that successful, uh, and so it was very effective. But but it, because we we couldn't really define the you know the unique success factor, if you like, in in the project, uh, then it was obviously very difficult to then scale that as a solution because it. It, it means you have to do it as a sort of bespoke project everywhere you go, which makes it difficult to bring to uh, many people. Listeners, let me just clarify this because I actually misunderstood it the first time I heard John say it. John's not talking about a copyright or a trademark. He's talking about replicability, that nugget of wisdom, that insight 
or even that technology, which can be implied in country after country after country. In any one country, you can get pretty far just on the basis of force of will, political leadership, and plain hard work. But ultimately, for an innovation to have a truly global reach, you need that nugget, that breakthrough, that success factor, that secret sauce, whatever you want to call it. Anyways, I did end up asking John specifically about intellectual property. Did he think that licensing technology was actually a barrier to scale? It goes in two directions in a way. In one is that exactly that, that it's, if someone holds intellectual property very close and so no one else can do the thing they do, that becomes a challenge because you know it's very hard then potentially for this to go to scale. It's not impossible, but it's difficult. Um, on the other hand, if you if you don't have intellectual property, i.e., you can't define your unique value proposition, then equally it's very hard to go to scale. You know because then it just becomes a we, we'll figure it out as we go uh, kind of intervention. And so mm-hmm. the. The, the the truth is what you you need a bit of a balance in between where you you do need intellectual property you I mean not necessarily formally in terms of patents but you need something that is underpinning the success of your innovation um that's mm-hmm. clear um and you need to be able to sort of scale the the use of that intellectual property um so it can be open sourced it can be subcontracted or whatever else but that that space in the middle is is really important to find um, to uh, to get to, to scale. I mean, if you think about the, the pharmaceutical sector, where obviously we we buy a lot of um, uh, pharmaceutical products for treatments of HIV, TB, and malaria, um, the intellectual property is really powerful because you can't develop a pharmaceutical without intellectual property. It's, you need a business model for it. Mm-hmm. But many of the companies we work with have outlicensed that intellectual property to allow generics manufacturers to to build cheaper you know bigger versions of it and and so in a way when you when we look at things like technology or other solutions it we we have to find that similar kind of balance if that makes sense that makes sense like you're in it for this the ways in which it can tackle hiv tb and malaria at scale and so there has to be that pathway to scale whether it be an open source approach a licensing approach but a way to get it at low cost to the communities that you're exactly, ultimately serving. Yeah. So that, that map, that vision needs to exist. And if you can't find it, you can't work with yeah. that innovation or that organization. That's fascinating. John, I know you've worked your whole career. I mean, not, sorry, not your whole career. You've worked for many, many years um, in the aid sector with CIF and GAIN and Oxfam. And so, so you know aid. Um, with the experience that you have now, what guidance would you give to big aid and philanthropists? to effectively leverage innovation coming from the private sector? Um, I, I, I mean, I think it's a great question. I think it's a really important one at the moment, um, <laughs> for sure. We're trying to figure it out on this podcast. So that's kind of why we're here. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's yeah, I, it's fantastic that, you know, that, that you're doing this. I, I mean, uh, there's a number of things. I mean, one is, I think we know that the world in terms of sort of public financing is challenged on many levels, you know, whether it's, African countries being able to fund their domestic, you know, their health budgets or international high-income countries and their commitments to overseas development assistance. It's a complicated conversation. 
so I think from a sort of private sector side, from philanthropists and companies looking at their funding, it, it, I would say it's hugely important they do more and as much <laughs> as possible. And there's, there's massive opportunity to really drive some fantastic innovations to have huge impact. I mean, I think we've hopefully talked about examples there. Um, and and then there's two spaces. I mean, one, I think we need innovation. I mean, that's what we started with, I think, really central to uh, the success of what we do, innovations in new products, innovations in uh, deploying technologies, things like artificial intelligence, uh, in, innovations in uh, sort of new other technologies, you know, things like drones, all, all fantastically uh, important. So supporting innovation is, I think, really valuable, um, in, in, particularly in the spaces that maybe are not about you know, product development, but in the delivery space, because delivering it to people is the biggest challenge. So I would really say more focus on that sort of sense of last mile delivery um, is really critical if we're going to change the poverty issues and the health issues of the poorest. Um, and then the third thing, um, and maybe it goes back to my my gate, you know, door in the in the in the fence between innovation and scale. Um, but this is the space where the biggest the biggest value is is if you think about the logic of driving impact innovation is completely the basis of impact you know the new solutions are there but but the real uplift in in value same in business same in 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 health impact it is in the scale that's the 10x and the 50x of impact um so logically, if you're thinking about where you would invest and where you put your money, um, yes, innovation is, is a necessary piece, but the real space that you get, if you like, your highest return on investment for impact, for driving better health for people, is in that 10x and 50x space. It's in the, the, the scaling component. It's in you know, what they call in venture capital, that valley of death. Um, if, and if we don't have... Uh, I think more financing, more investment in that, then then we're missing the the, the highly, you know, the, the 10 and 50x um, that gets us to scale. And we're also, you know, we're not providing the impetus for more innovation because unless you have that innovation going to scale and being successful and, you know, becoming sustained, then you, you know, people who innovate will not continue uh, to be in that space. So the sort of pull through of working in that that scaling space is really important. Um, so I would really say that that's a, a, a fundamental space where I think often we don't we don't get the investment profile right because people love innovation and they love finding a new solution. But the truth is that's hugely valuable, central to our success, but not uh, enough unless we have the 10x and 50x investment. That is fascinating. And that's really fascinating to hear from you, John. I think on this podcast, we've talked a little bit with public donors and private investors. And on the private side, they definitely, as you mentioned, you know, it's, there's a lot of emphasis on that valley of death. But to hear that validated from you, speaking as a, a large institutional donor, uh, it's really compelling. I also love the first thing that you said, which I haven't heard before, which is just do more. Yeah, do more. <laughs> that's my takeaway. John, you've been so generous with your time. We have just a few questions uh, for you as part of our rapid fire segment. Uh, this is just quick questions, one or two sentences on each that we're going to run through. First one is if you wanted to offer a shout out to someone who has inspired or guided your work. 
Yeah, sure. I mean, many, many people. I mean, uh, apart from the, the, the lady in Afghanistan, um, who was certainly an inspiration to um, to uh, my work, um, I, I think one person that I've, I've always hugely admired and has been a great um, sort of counsel um, is someone called Raj Punjabi. Um, uh, many people may know, he, he founded an organisation called Last Mile Health, uh, which, which developed and supported community health workers in uh, Liberia. Um, he's also from Liberia. Um, uh, uh, he's now actually the senior director for, for global health security and biodefense in the US government. So has a very uh -huh. important role in uh, in the world of global health. Um, but That's has always changed. been hugely inspiring, yes. Um, yeah. And a great friend um, to think about, you know, how do you connect resources and how do you connect people to... Uh, really effective uh, programs that as less my health is um too so he's been a, a great support and and um and someone i admire greatly um in my time working in this business fascinating next question is just for fun can you recommend a book a blog or a podcast that you've enjoyed in your personal time yeah at the moment i'm, I'm reading this really fascinating book um called the imagination machine never heard of it which is by someone called Martin Reeves and uh, another guy called Jack Fuller. And it's really fascinating. It's about how do you create the space in organisations, particularly bigger organisations, for imagination, for innovation, in essence. Oh, wow. And, and the different dimensions of what makes that successful. So, you know, in a way, recognising that a lot of innovation, uh, you know, one of the, one of the examples used in the book, but one of the most oft-used examples is how Lego came to to dominate the world uh, certainly for children yeah i gotta get him on the show yeah really really fascinating to listen to the the sort of common characteristics of of how you unlock imagination in order to you know drive it towards you know great new solutions and and thinking and it and it, you know i mean it, as you demonstrate as as this conversation demonstrated it's it's incredibly exciting and motivating to be able to do those things. I think in so many organizations these days, we get stuck into uh, delivering the, the day job and don't have that time and space and opportunity to, to step back and think and, uh, and, and create. Uh, so it's hugely motivating for people, but obviously hugely, uh, you know, value adding, um, if you can do that so that's a fascinating book absolutely and i love legos i play with them all the time so <laughs> all the more reason for me to read it john are there any parting words you want to share with our audience or any more information you want to pass along no i mean other obviously to say thank you for for having me um i you know i think as we talked about i you know the the entrepreneurs that are coming up with these uh, new ideas. I have huge admiration for the passion of the people that we meet um, Me too. and their drive. Um, you know, I would say we, we need people to be ambitious. We need people to continue that that drive that they can change the world through their solutions. Um, Amen. It's hugely important. Um, I I think, as you said, maybe it's surprising to say to people to do more, but we all need to do more. You know, there's. <laughs> There are so many things happening in the world at the moment that are, are challenges, and and as is always the case, they 
they are the biggest challenge for the most vulnerable and the poorest in the world, you know, wherever they are. Um, uh, and being able to sort of get to take the passion of those entrepreneurs and, you know, the, the privilege I have in the Global Fund is where I can connect that to, to taking those things to scale and, and connecting those two audiences is just fantastic. So if we can do more of that together, then I think we can continue to make such a huge difference to people's lives uh, as well. Wow. Great words to end on, John. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us. Thank you for having me. Hope you enjoyed the show and this tiny little window into the world of how a major multilateral aid agency works with and thinks about innovation. I don't know about you, but I really liked John's guidance for donors. Do more. Just do more. If you like what you heard today, do connect with us on LinkedIn or Twitter. We'll also be taking time in a future episode to discuss your questions and comments. So please send us your questions and comments to podcast at aidevolved.com. Join us again in two weeks when we speak with Dr. Bijou Mohandas. For almost 10 years, Bijou led healthcare investments in Sub-Saharan Africa for IFC, the largest development finance institution, managing assets worth $3 billion to support the private sector in emerging economies. I'll see you soon.